You're listening to episode 148 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest WTA Pro Danielle Lau. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Aranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And I'm really excited to present to you a really fun interview that I had with WTA Pro Danielle Lau. And we actually recorded this as the very first live podcast episode that I have done uh, on video while people were asking us questions, which was really fun. We had many hundreds of people who attended and asked a lot of awesome questions, as you'll hear in this uh, pretty long episode, I'd say. And uh, we both had a lot of fun, and uh, it seems like I'm going to be doing it again. So uh, if you're not part of my uh, email list yet, then feel free to subscribe at TennisFiles.com because that's where... Uh, that's how you'll be able to hear about these live podcast episodes. So I'm excited to do more of them. But if you don't know about Danielle Lau, she is a top 200 WTA pro. Uh, I know that she's had a a career high of 152 about, and she's around 200 right now. Uh, She is a former USC standout, and she also has a blog at thelittlegiant.net. And I really love it when tennis professionals have blogs because it always offers a really great insight into their travels and their tournament experiences and really going more deep into their personalities and their experiences, their ups and downs. And that's always really, really fun to to read and uh, really insightful stuff that you can gather from players who blog. I know that also Jason, uh, Jason Jung, who I've had on the podcast uh, a few years ago, actually, he is also another great player who uh, who blogs as well. So those are two people that you want to check out uh, if you want to read more about what they're doing. Um, but Danielle also has her social media handles at The Little Giant. So definitely uh, hit her up on, on those accounts and check her account out or her <laughs> profiles out and what she's up to. Um, but yeah, we talked about some really great things on this podcast for you, uh, including her match preparation, her routines, uh, ups and downs throughout her career and how she's come back from them. Uh, Of course, her journey from the juniors to the pro tour. And interestingly, you know, how she was almost going to just have a regular job. um, But then all of a sudden, she just really felt something inside of her that said, no, you know, follow your passions, which uh, much respect to to her and also her parents for uh, uh, supporting that move. Uh, also, how pros are dealing with with the uh, pandemic these days, which is a really tough situation, what Daniel needs to do to reach the top 100 and beyond, and even a, a cool tip about how 
it's really important to understand your body's rhythm and how that helps you get your timing back. So a lot of, a lot of really great things that we talked about and um, you, the questions that we answered in real time as well. So I really hope that you enjoy this interview with uh, with a top 200 pro here with, with Danielle Lau. So uh, we'll get straight to it right now. So without further ado, here is my interview with Danielle. All right. Hey, everybody. Um, if you can hear me right now, uh, just click or actually just uh, shoot a message in the chat. But uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to have Danielle Lau with us on the Tennis Files podcast. And as I mentioned in our uh, in my email, this is actually the first time that we've gone live for the podcast, which is really cool for me. Um, right. hey, oh, sorry. I think something's playing here. Sorry, that was feedback on YouTube. I was checking that it was okay. But anyways, uh, Danielle, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, how's everything going for you these days? Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, I guess things are slow, just like uh, we all anticipated uh, with, with this, with all this craziness. But just making the most of things, trying to stay productive, trying to stay in shape, and finding different goals and purposes day in day out so it, it's it's been different but it's it's been a an interesting change cool cool awesome and yeah it's, it's really cool to have such a high level player on the show and you i think you've been as high as like 152 was it and uh yeah so we'll get into a lot of uh your you know ups and downs in your career and how you got to where you are right now and uh but one interesting thing about you which i really love and actually that's uh, you know, something that I love about players who do this is that you actually write about your adventures mm -hmm. and, you know, not just tennis, you know, you, you talk about how, how you enjoy photography and you have a lot of other yeah. interests and, you know, with host families, you know, that experience as well. So I highly encourage everybody to, to check out um, your, your website, which by the way, I actually saw there were two different links. I was wondering, is it the .net one or is it the WordPress or is it either one? Yeah, I, it's either one. The okay. the .net one probably has more videos and such because it's tough for me to upload videos on WordPress. Yeah. Um, but I I started a WordPress maybe a year and a half ago because it was just easier to mobile upload. Mm -hmm. But now the .net is it's a little bit more convenient. And now that I'm not traveling so much. It was easier to put videos up there, and I and I like sharing some of the video content I've been putting together. It's it's been super fun for me. Yeah, yeah. It's actually you have a lot of entertaining videos, actually. So good job on the <laughs> video editing. Yeah, for sure. So we'll we'll link a few of those as well. Um, so yeah, and and as far as your your uh, you know, I guess I'd call it a nickname, the little giant, which is also yeah. obviously the the you know your website's uh, name. How how did you? get that nickname was it self-imposed or did someone give it to you yeah i've, I've told this story a few times and i, I kind of laugh every time i tell it so i was in high school and i was doing an english exercise in english class and we were to come up with oxymorons and so the first one i thought of was jumbo shrimp and the next one i thought of was the little giant and the I think Twitter at that time had just recently gotten like popular amongst the kids. And so I went to go check it out for my computer class and I needed to create a username. And I thought, oh, the little giant, it was just very fresh in my head. And I thought I resonated with it a little bit, especially on the tennis courts. So I, I put that down as my Twitter name. And from then on, I just 
never looked back. I wanted to be consistent. So when Instagram came out and everything, I, I called myself the little giant too. So it's, it's been cool. Awesome. And I, I personally am really glad that you didn't choose Jumbo Shrimp because I'm, <laughs> I'm allergic to shellfish. So that would have been weird. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as far as, um, you know, the blogging and also uploading videos and your creativity, I was wondering, like, what, what sparked uh, your desire to actually blog about what you're doing? I think I've always loved sharing my experience with others. Maybe I just really enjoy what I'm doing and... So I, I think like through writing, it just helps me to kind of document it for myself so I can look back at it. And it's a, it's a great way for me to share with others too. So I'm killing two birds with one stone when I'm doing it. Uh, I, I've, I've always been, you know, someone who writes ever since I was a little younger. I, I wouldn't say I had the biggest vocabulary by like expressing myself through like words, maybe simpler words and trying to express feelings and emotions. So um, it all it all started there, and now slowly through videoing and such, um, I'm working on that too. Maybe my videos are more, uh, you know, on the humorous side, but um, but it's it's cool to have different mediums to express yourself. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I see. Uh, I think Christiane is it like going ham? Oh, she's on amazing. <laughs> this funny stuff there. Yeah, really she's amazing. Funny. I love her stuff. <laughs> yeah, she's hilarious. So. Um, and I just want to kind of get back to a, a little bit about the beginning, because sometimes we forget about uh, why we're playing the game. So I wanted to mm -hmm. ask you what specifically sparked your interest and eventually your love for tennis. So when I first began playing, it was more of an activity my parents wanted me to do. I was actually a golfer before I was a tennis player. So that was my first sport. And then uh, my parents just wanted me to play a different type of sport and I guess when I started to compete and uh, I won my first tournament that I enrolled in the feeling of holding a trophy and winning it was it was something I never experienced before I know I was eight years old but I really liked the feeling and so just being a, a competitor and pushing yourself every day challenging yourself even at a young age it felt felt real empowering for me and that's what I really enjoyed about tennis. And I enjoyed it about golf too, but maybe the, the pace of the sport really didn't, uh, didn't have bring me to enjoy it as much as playing tennis. So for me, um, I guess the tempo of the sport, the competitiveness and the, um, the challenge to be better every day, I think that's what, what really drew me closer and closer to it. And over time, you just have an appreciation for your own improvement and the life lessons that you learn in the sport. So my love for the game is still growing and um, I'm real thankful for it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we are as well. It's, you know, it's really fun to watch you and your journey and to read about it. And uh, so I, I listened to a, a podcast as we were talking about before the, the show started uh, with Omar uh, Press Switch from uh, K-Swiss, as you can see on your shirt. And uh, it, was, it was really great for me to, uh, to help prepare for this interview. And mm -hmm. so I heard you mention on that show, uh, on the podcast, that you uh, watched a certain match at 10 years old. And that was uh, at that point you decided to become a professional tennis player. So could you talk uh -huh. to us about uh, that particular match? Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think that was the Wimbledon match that Pete Sampras won. And I remember I was in Mexico and he he had won. 
his Wimbledon final and he went out up to the crowd to embrace his father and he was he was crying in tears and I couldn't believe that somebody could be happy and crying at the same time and in my young mind I was like wow what what an incredible emotion and um man if tennis can bring you bring you that that you know deep of an experience like that'd be so awesome if I could be this good at it and uh, be a professional so that was super inspiring to watch to watch Pete you know just break down on center court cry and achieve achieve this enormous goal that he set out for himself so when when I was young at that time I, I thought yeah professional tennis would be an incredible dream the theatrics and everything it seems so awesome uh so so yeah I'm glad I, I get to do it now I probably took a, a little longer route than some other people, but still, it, it is the dream to do it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and we'll get into that as well. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. And, and a lot of us still have this. Actually, my my mom, uh, relatedly, like she never went to my matches because she got so nervous about uh, <laughs> watching me play. But um, uh-huh. you mentioned that you had performance anxiety and you, yeah. like, you like to keep score and all that. So how are you able to actually overcome that fear and then obviously become one of the best in the world? So I guess like performance anxiety, it started um, at the beginning when I started competing. And for me, I got nervous, but it was also, it was also an excitement. And I thought that by putting myself in that uncomfortable position, I was making myself better in general, not only just as a tennis player, but as a person. And I felt like doing difficult things was just going to help me in life in general. So at that point, having some sort of performance anxiety, that was my difficult thing. And I felt that facing that day in and day out, it would make me tougher. Yeah. And just not as a tennis player, but just as a person. So for me, doing that difficult thing was was what got me through. And up till now, probably I still do have a little performance anxiety, but I, now I kind of look at that feeling, I smile at it, and I and I think of it as as this great positive energy where I can have an opportunity to do something really cool, really great, really meaningful. Awesome. And um, as far as your junior career, I was curious mm-hmm. to see, uh, because obviously like the, the younger years are just so crucial for your eventually yeah. how well you do in, in the future. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, if you could talk about like your training and like what type of environment you trained in, was it in an academy Uh or just like with friends or or anything like that? And it would kind of walk us through how that was for you as a junior. Yeah. So I'm a first generation athlete and my parents had to help me figure this out. My dad mainly in the younger years. So in the beginning, it was a lot of lessons. It was some group group lessons that that morphed into private lessons. And at that time, I don't think I live in Arcadia, California. So at that time, there wasn't a huge tennis community yet, especially with kids my age. Maybe the Rusty Miller Tennis Academy in Arcadia Park was as close as you can get to, um, you know, having a community to play with. But even then, there were the kids there were a lot older than me. So my main practice in my earlier years were my tennis lessons with my coach, and then. I think at around like 12, 13 years old, I started taking from another coach in Claremont. And so those were my main practice uh, sessions then. And around like 14, 15 years old, I, I started to practice with maybe some of the younger boys um, at maybe 12, 13 years old. And um, so I, I had a pretty consistent 
you know, pretty consistent practice partners in the boys that were around the area then. So I started to incorporate a little bit more practice sets, more match play, and uh, maybe taking lessons two, two, three times a week. And I also started to up my tournament load too at around like, you know, 15, 16 years old and continued to play more sets and more sets. And around like 16, 17, I started to train at uh, in Carson at the StubHub Center. Uh, which is the USTA base. So I, I was getting some competition with other girls or practice practice competition with girls there that were my age or maybe a year or two younger or older than me. So um, so I think as my junior career progressed, I started to find the the tennis community a little bit easier to access and more people to practice with. But definitely in the beginning, it was a lot of tennis lessons. Gotcha. And mm-hmm. how did you balance, uh, because... Is it, as far as like playing up versus playing your age group, I mean, there's some debate on like what is best and everything. Some say that you should just play until you're you're winning in your age group. So what was your like uh, balance of uh, playing up uh, versus playing your own age division? Yeah, so I played a lot in my age division, actually. I, granted, in the earlier years, I didn't play that many tournaments. Actually, I started to play more tournaments when I was 13, 14, and so in the earlier years, because I didn't play that much, I was playing within my division. Um, when I was 13, 14, I started to see a little bit more progress. Maybe a little, my parents started to see a little bit more promise. They would perhaps enter me into a few 16-year-old tournaments. But for the bigger events, uh, maybe a sectional, a national, they would put me in my age group. And I guess we've always thought that we that it was important to to play people above you just to know what you have uh upcoming next or what you're like shooting for in your game like how your game needs to evolve for um in order to take the next step to play the next division above but we also knew it was super important to play in our own division because i needed to learn how to win in in my division too so um i don't really recommend like one or the other i think you need exposure both in both playing in your division and in playing up uh, I, I, I definitely think seeing that type of variety is good for the development of, of any junior. Mm-hmm. For sure, Danielle. And uh, I also heard you talk about how uh, when it came, to, it came to time to decide between going to college or the pros, you felt like you weren't uh, ready to go uh, pro. And I was wondering, uh, you know, to like when you broke it down, like what exactly was it about your game that you like what was the gap where you feel like oh i needed to be at this level in order to actually go pro right now yeah so right before college maybe at around when i was starting to train in carson with the usta a little bit i was able to go on a few professional tournaments and a few professional trips and i just wasn't having much success actually maybe i'd win i think i went on a six month losing streak to be honest and uh, yes, some of the matches were close and I could easily say I'm right there, but I knew something just wasn't right if I couldn't, if I couldn't turn the corner and, and win those matches. So, so for me, it was, I, I wanted to be realistic with myself. I probably could have given myself another year to see if I settled into that level of play, but I just knew college was too great an opportunity to pass up. So for me. I just, I decided that that was the route I was going to take. And, you know, if, if professional tennis never happens, it would be okay. 
but I was hoping that, you know, maybe somehow if my passion had, had grown or, you know, at least very much stayed the way it was that I would have a chance to possibly pursue it after. Awesome. And, and so with college, obviously a great uh, training ground, you know, Stevie Johnson, for example, yeah. uh, or many others. Um, what was it in your game that you would say you improved the most upon um, from the college uh, training and coaching and overall experience? Mm -hmm. So I think in college, I was, I went in when I was 18, I had done some fitness before, some some sort of training at the USTA. So I was somewhat prepared physically, but not quite. I think I don't think I developed fully until I was maybe 20, 21. So at USC, I had a great opportunity to have an amazing facility to to continue to grow and to become a better athlete. And uh, in terms of tennis, I think the biggest part that I that I made gains in was my mental game during college, I don't think you, well, at that point, you don't feel, you've never felt that type of pressure that a dual match gives you. You know, when it, when you have a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of teammates, the crowd, your coaches, your trainers, just they're supporting you and you know you want to win for them. That's a lot, that's an immense amount of pressure to be put under and week in, week out, sometimes twice or three times a week and being able to deal with that difficult thing all the time and frequently, it it definitely does do something for you and it makes you tougher. So I, I definitely do think like that was the biggest gain for me and it's and it's helped my professional career for sure. Awesome, Danielle. Yeah, I can remember actually one of my first college tournaments. We were at Cornell and then I was um, playing and one of the opposing uh, teammates said, oh, my grandmother plays better than you. And it was like, what? <laughs> mentally, it can be tough sometimes. But yeah, yeah I definitely agree. And that's one thing I really enjoy is, uh, you know, on your blog, you talk a lot about the mental game and, and so yeah. forth. And and, and curious, um, what was your uh, most memorable uh, experience as a college tennis player? Gosh, there's there's so many. Uh, I, I I blogged a lot about it, but I I would have to say the team win to get to the final four in 2012 was was incredible. We were in Athens, Georgia. It was hot and humid. Uh, we were playing Stanford. Stanford's one of the best programs in the history of college tennis. So we were huge underdogs and. I think the score, the match score was we, we were down to three or actually it was two all. And uh, I had come back in the third set. I'd, I'd won my match to make it three, two. And maybe five seconds later, my teammate next to me, Sabrina Santa Maria, clinches, clinches her match, clinches the whole dual match. So within, you know, 10 seconds of, of everything happening, it, it was the biggest win that I've had as a team or we've had as a team since I had been at USC and like just the theatrics of it being at NCAAs that, that definitely sticks out big time in my head. Sweet. Sweet. Yeah. It's, it's some of the best memories uh, of all time. So yeah. as far as um, the, uh, the pro tour versus the college, uh, I guess tour or whatever, but like, how, what's the main difference with like, you know, when you jump from, college to and actually we'll get into your your jump but like college to professional like what are the some is some of the biggest differences that you see in the two levels uh 
that that's a good question actually i i do think on the professional level the level of tennis the the skill level is a lot higher um you just need there are just less weaknesses and um you have you're playing against a lot of um highly skilled girls the girls who are best in the world uh quality players week in week out sometimes in first round so your game needs to be on from the beginning from the beginning of every tournament so I, I i wouldn't say that there's more pressure on tour i would definitely say the the pressure i felt in school was it, you you i haven't felt that type of pressure in, in, a, in a very long time May, maybe qualifying for a grand slam it, it's pretty equal but it's a different type of pressure so for sure it's just the quality of shots the quality of play there's just not as many weaknesses on the professional tour Gotcha, Daniel. Great stuff. And we have a great question from Neil that's on the screen. Uh, sorry mm -hmm. if the text is a little small, but uh, Neil yeah. says, Hi, Danielle. What is the best advice you received when you are playing uh, not your best in a match? How do you handle pressure? Yeah. Great question, Neil. So I, I, always, um, I always think back to what my college coach told me when I wasn't playing my best. And he would always tell me that I had to focus on what I can control. And the number one thing he, he always pointed out was my attitude and like my belief to win, despite the fact that maybe not all my shots are working. And you'd be surprised when you have that thought, when you can push away your, the bad thoughts of how you're playing and you can think about what you can do and what you can maximize in this moment, you'd be surprised what a relief that that takes off your shoulders and you might actually just start to play a little bit better or, or at the very least see the match a little bit different. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, I remember that you actually uh, mentioned this principle when uh, COVID came about and how yeah. I think you, you ended up buying a stationary bike and, and uh, <laughs> with your family, which was pretty cool, but uh, that's just great all around. Cause especially mm -hmm. with what's happening now, I think we just have to really focus on ourselves, improving ourselves and uh, focusing mm -hmm. on what we can control just like in matches. So I uh, really love that advice there. And thanks for the great question, Neil. Um, as far as forming a team, Danielle, like how do you go about uh, doing that? What are some tips for maybe other players? Hopefully, maybe some of you someday will be pro, or even if not, forming a team right now to uh, to help you. Like, what have you done to help you form a good team? Yeah. So at the start of my professional career, you probably have the bare basics. You need a coach, and uh, my coach that I've I've been working with. Um, for the past, for during my professional career, I've had him since I was 15 and we've been, we've been great since, and he knows my game better than anyone. So it's great that I have him in my corner. So, so for starters, finding a coach you trust is, is super important. Um, maybe even to start off someone you have some history with too, because they just, they just know you and you're, you're, you're trying, you're trying this new thing out. And you you want some you want somebody who knows you and and knows how you tick knows how you think to to help like send you off the right way I think at the very least like to help guide you in the beginning um, because there's a lot of things on tour that um, that might derail you and um, you need somebody that knows you to to recenter you and of course I, I think you're at least for me my my family has been you know, super supportive uh, of of my career. And, um, it's especially, you know, mom and dad who've been there from the beginning, who have seen me grow up again, people who 
who've seen the whole journey, it's super important to keep them in the picture, I think, because they can give you um, an amount of perspective sometimes you, you, you cannot see, uh, especially when you're in it. And, uh, and there's a lot of pressure and desire for you to succeed. So, so I would say fill it with, in the start, from the start, fill it with people that, that have probably been with you for a while. And um, as, as I went on with my career, I started to think about the smaller things, maybe like somebody to help take care of my body. I do have a massage therapist. He doesn't travel with me because he's way too expensive and I'm not, I don't make that type of money yet, <laughs> but I do consistently see him every, anytime I'm in town. If I have a training month um, or a few training weeks, I see him every 10 days. So it's important to keep the body healthy. And uh, I, I do work with a, a mental coach now. Uh, he's, um, he's one of the USTA mental coaches. And I, if, I, if I were to go back, I probably would have tried to seek one out a little earlier. But um, better late than never. And, he's, and we've been making great gains uh, doing that, too. So it's, 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 been, it's been real cool to, to work on, on the mental side with him. Awesome. Awesome. And, and we have a question on Facebook as well from, from Paul, a fellow uh, mid-Atlantic tennis player. Uh, he was wondering, and you know, you don't have to talk about like your specific one, but uh, what percentage of winnings does a, a coach uh, generally get? Like, how does uh -huh. that work? <laughs> well, I, I guess it d depends on your agreement. Uh, so certain, certain players like to give percentages. For me, what I what I do is I pay them per week or I, if my coach is on the road with me, I pay them per week. And let's say if we're at a slam, I make main draw, I give them a bonus or I give them a bonus for like on top of the weekly pay. Uh, just like, you know, it, it sounds bad to say as incentive because we all want to win anyways. We all, we all want me to do well. Uh, but, um, but yeah, just like an extra reward. And um and of course, like if I, if I come in to play well and come into a little bit more money, I want to share it too, especially with the people who've been helping me. So uh, for me, at least I think those are the two ways that are the most uh, common to, to pay your coach. Sweet. I appreciate the mm -hmm. insights there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a cool question from uh, James here. Um, thank mm -hmm. you both. Uh, thank you, James. How do you move forward from a loss? And you talked about losing streaks as well. So how does that work? Yeah. For you? Yeah. You know, this is, this is tough. And I, I have had to work at it because I, I do put my heart and soul in every single match and they're, they're tough to get over, especially the losses, but uh, being on tour, you've got a neck, more more times than not you have another tournament next week so you have to somehow compartmentalize what you need to do in order to improve for next week but also not dwell on the losses or um yeah not dwell on the losses or the mistakes uh too much so for me i try to look at it um in in a more like objective manner and i try not to judge myself for my mistakes just look at my mistakes as like um, it's like a blueprint on how I can be better next week. And it's, it's been tough to reframe my mind to do that, but, uh, it's, it's definitely been helping, especially when every loss has got its emo own emotional, like taxing, taxing effects. So it, it, it's definitely not easy, but if you can somehow crave improvement, 
more than you than a loss can discourage you i think that that definitely helps all right. Thanks for that, Daniel. And so in reading through your blog, um, I, I saw, and I think it might've been 2019 where you mentioned how, you know, you had this, I guess, opportunity in terms of not needing to defend as many points and you had an opportunity to like really, I guess, advance your ranking and so forth. And then because of that, you thought about that to the point of putting a lot of pressure on yourself. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that period and then, you know, mm -hmm. what type of thoughts that you, you had and what you did to kind of get out of that. Yeah, that, that definitely was a tough period, but a huge learning experience. I, I came off of a great fall in 2018 and um, a great Australian Open to start the year and at the beginning of 2019. And I had that that segment where a lot of expectations started to roll in. And um, in my mind, I felt like if I couldn't take advantage of this moment now, I'm, I may not be able to defend my points um, or defend my points later in the year and that would be and to drop my ranking below 300 or whatever it was the i had the biggest fear for that to happen and so i guess like fear and expectation combined is so hard to deal with and i just couldn't allow myself to play and i i had to kind of go back to a little journaling, back to a little writing and see like where, where are all these thoughts coming from? And yeah, I definitely did forget about, you know, just playing for the feeling and the joy of the game. And when, when I revisited it and, and found that, that joy to improve again and, and why I really enjoy this sport, it, it kind of fixed everything a little bit. It by all means, wasn't easy because it's hard to let go of your goals and it's hard to detach yourself from those results because they, they just add up. And I mean, what are you playing for? You're playing for, you're playing to play in grand slams. You're playing to try to be top hundred in the world. At least like for me, it's like, it's such a huge goal and I, and I want it more than anything. So it's hard to detach from it and let yourself just enjoy it because you feel like when you're enjoying it, you're almost like you're slacking off a bit. Like I'm not serious enough. If I want to be top hundred in the world, I gotta be serious, but I, I don't, I, I would, tell myself, you know, 20 hindsight is always 2020. But um, if I were to go back and, you know, uh, redo it all, I would tell myself to, to enjoy this moment. And to, to just focus on, you know, the feeling of playing play the game, you know, don't don't play the results, don't play your expectations, play the game. Yeah, for sure. And I'm um, curious, you mentioned that uh, when we were talking about uh, finding a, a good team for you that mm -hmm. you're your coach and support team, uh, they help recenter you. So I was wondering about the process of like, what, what does that mean by uh, recentering yourself? Yeah, I think um, depending on what you're going through, it could, it could mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes you need your team to remind you why you played or like you need them to point at, pointed out to you that gosh you're running around everywhere like you have a piano on your back like what is wrong and sometimes it's just technical you know you compete a lot sometimes you develop some habits while you're competing or if you're playing slightly injured you're you're developing some some technical habits as well so and and that's great to have especially for me to have a coach that I've been working with since I'm 15 he can pick up my technical um, glitches right off the bat. So there's, um, there's a couple ways to recenter yourself. I guess it just, it just really depends. And also physically, when I come back from, uh, from a long trip and my body's a little banged up, I have my you know, massage 
therapist to to check out my body to, and he knows like normally what what gets tight what normally locks up in my body so he gets me back to to neutral to normal so it yeah it's it again it's super important to have a team to bring you back to center or to reset you for sure danielle mm -hmm. so uh, a different kind of question that you know i'm not sure how much you've <laughs> thought of this but uh, uh -huh. tim uh hello tim he asks how do you see internet coaching impacting how young players can learn tennis uh -huh. i assume youtube and other online platforms weren't available when you uh, were a yeah. junior so uh interesting for you you know i assume that you probably have had like 100% or 99.9% in person coaching, but what do you think about uh, internet coaching? Well, actually, I I have all the Vic Braden tapes. There you so go. I, I, I definitely went through through those and uh, tried to pick up tidbits here and there. I also, I, I was such a tennis nerd. Like sometimes if my coaches had pamphlets of like, you know, frame by frame, Pete Sampras serve and Patrick Rafter serve and like maybe Martina's backhand. Like I, I actually, I think I may have even scanned it and I have it on a hard drive somewhere. I thought I, I thought it would be of some value someday. Um, but I, I do, I think internet coaching, it's, it's great that it's there, but I think it can be confusing actually especially if you're working with a coach I, I i talk to my my coach all the time and he works with other juniors and um sometimes he'll say yeah so and so is kind of copying djokovic a bit too much and but this is what we're working he's not djokovic yet and 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 whatnot so although it's a great resource i think sometimes it may be too much for players um it, it also depends like what stage in um in your career you're at or at what stage in your game you're at um if you're watching stuff on the internet for maybe uh strategy and tactics i think i think that's that's really useful for anybody on all on all levels and all game styles um but in terms of like technique i think it can be a little a little hairy to to go like tinker with that on your own but it, i guess it also depends like how serious you are you're trying to build a junior tennis player or are you are you just some a recreational player that likes to play on the weekends? Then if, if that's the case, like you know, more power to you. Go go learn everything Federer, Rafa, and Djokovic does, and go copy it because I I think it's definitely definitely fun to to get out there on the weekend and in your mind, you know, be a kid again and like feel like you're one of those professionals. So in, in that way, I think it's cool. Awesome. Yeah. And, and definitely it's, uh, you have to be smart about it. Um, you can't just go and copy one player cause we all have different body types and different mm -hmm. games. So it's, it's important to you be smart about it as well. And also seek out the best, uh, resources as well, which is why I try to bring great guests mm -hmm. like yourself on the show and in other interviews. So yeah, of course. <laughs> so, um, Danielle, you talked about, and I can't remember if this was your, in your blog or your interview, but, um, you uh -huh. mentioned that, some players, uh, they might get desperate and then end up taking shortcuts. And mm -hmm. so I was curious if you have ever yourself um, reached a point where you were taking any sor sort of shortcuts uh, in your career. And, and if so, uh, what were those shortcuts? Or if not, maybe an example of someone else, you don't have to name them, who, who's done that. <laughs> yeah. Sh shortcuts. Um, I'm trying to think when I mentioned that, but... Uh, for for me, some the most relevant shortcut I feel like I I sometimes take, and this is more out of desperation, is when you're maybe you're slightly injured, and you just 
and instead of fully rehabbing the body, you just kind of, you know, put a little glue on it, tape it up and, and go back out there and just assume it's just going to work itself out at some point. I think over the years, for me, I have tried to, you know, solidify my foundation physically in order for my body to withstand the amount of pounding it takes to be at this level. And I, I'm still working at it. I still get hurt here and there, but also learning about the body, learning what triggers certain pains and what triggers certain injuries is so important for me. And uh, maybe in the beginning, I, I just saw my injuries as like, oh, I just got hurt there. And maybe I take a little rest and maybe take a couple of days off and, and get back at it again without really solving the problem or, or, or digging under to see like what's really going on there. So if I were to think of the most relevant shortcut for me, some, sometimes I do do that. And I'm more aware of it now. And, and sometimes you do take those shortcuts because you're in, a, in the middle of a four-week you know, tournament swing and you can't really do much about it. You're not, you can't go back home. You just got to stick through it. I remember last year during grass season, I was having some elbow problems. But, I mean, I'm all the way in, in England. I'm not about to turn around before Wimbledon comes around. So I just got to put some tape on it and put a little few needles in it, take some – take some leave, take some painkillers and, and just get out there. So it's, it, it's tough. So I, I don't even know if you can call that a shortcut. It, it's just, it's just knowing when, when you need to, yeah, research and, and, you know, expand your knowledge. Yeah. Comes with the uh, experience for sure. And uh, let's see, we have some comments here. Oh, very nice. Uh, this is so interesting to hear the inner thoughts of developing from a beginner to where Danielle is now. The openness is great. Thanks. Appreciate that, David. Thanks, David. And um, Phil has a question here. Uh, how do you handle life on the tour, hotels, flights, scheduling, etc.? Also, how do you deal with the loneliness of world travel, including relationships? Great question. Yeah, so um, traveling on tour, it's it's a challenge. Definitely, the first year or so, it was it was tough to find the cheapest flights. Do you book ahead? Do you book last minute so you don't have to? pay a change fee but i've also gotten pretty savvy with using credit card points and um you know redemption of miles so for me maybe the the tidbit tip that i would say is normally i would i would pay for my flight out to a tournament in cash but i would leave the return flight maybe for i, I would leave my my points i've accumulated to to purchase a flight back since it's a little bit more last minute and um, dealing with loneliness of, of world travel, uh, it's 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 tough. Um, I, I definitely do have some some teammates on tour. Uh, Sabrina, Santa Maria, Caitlin, Christian, Juliana, almost every time we see each other at a WTA event or at a Grand Slam, it's super special because one, we're really great friends, and two, it's uh, it's a cool feeling that we we've come this far, and uh, we're we're living the dream together. So that that's real cool to to catch up with with friends like that. Um, but it's it definitely is tough uh, to to stay connected with the people at home. But I also do keep in mind of how grateful I am that we have FaceTime. We have we have the technology we have now that we didn't have before. And uh, it's if if anything, this is as this is as good as it's ever been. And this is as not lonely as I ever will be when I'm on on the road. So it's, 
it's it's all right it, it's definitely manageable and i'm also pretty independent too so so missing the people at home it's it's tough but i know how to put it aside because i just i just love what i do yeah it was interesting too to read about how uh at, at one point you decided to go to some tournaments just alone to kind of um yeah. I, maybe reset or to so yeah, yeah. Could you talk about that as well and how that helped you yeah so i we we talk about you know, building a team, having people around you to help you. And, and that's like super important. But I think also for me, because I, I came from, you know, a college tennis background, I've, I'm always thinking of others too. And, and sometimes having a team with you on the road for, for many weeks at a time, I, I start to become a little concerned about everyone else. And I start, start to not focus on myself. I'm wondering about where everyone else wants to eat and not really worried about where I want to eat. And, and it's not, and I, and I don't blame anyone for that. That's, that's my own doing. And I, I just, I just feel like, you know, when I'm, when I'm selfish for too long a time, I feel a little weird. And so when I set out to go on a, few tournaments myself well there's no one around me so I could be I didn't even really feel selfish but I just only had to focus on myself so it was cool to reset that way and um and yeah especially after a slam sometimes especially after U.S. Open where there's enormous amount of craziness and hustle and bustle there when you go out to a tournament by yourself you just have a lot of alone time to just pipe down from an event like that it's 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 harder than you think actually <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can imagine that. And um, so, more of a gear question from mm -hmm. uh, Paul again. He was curious what your string setup is. So, I use Tonic Natural Gut uh, by Babolat in the mains, and I use Adrenaline, Luxlon Adrenaline Rough on the crosses. And I string it at, depending where I am, I try to string the mains at 51, 52 pounds, and the crosses at, yeah, 51, 52 pre stretch, 10%. Gotcha. And like mm -hmm. how, cause I, you know, for our mere mortals, like when we see or hear about how often uh, the pros restring, it's like pretty uh -huh. crazy, but like how, how often do you restring? I'm not real big on that actually, to be yeah. honest. Um, I, I guess because I'm playing with gut, it holds the tension pretty well. Sometimes it starts to get dead, but when the gut gets dead, sometimes it feels really nice for me. Uh, for when I'm playing matches, I do like to have a fresh racket at least every two matches but that's i almost feel so low maintenance for that when people come into a match and they have three or four rackets um i've, I've always believed that if you have the skill in your hand you should be able to adjust and and that's me i've always i've always strung my own rackets ever since i was younger when i'm on the road sometimes i get somebody to do it but normally i i'm, I'm doing my own rackets and because i know the labor that has to go into it the care and like However, I string my racket. I, I don't just like, I'm just, I just feel like cutting them out today, having a fresh batch of strings. No, no, no. You could totally play with what you got right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and, and so actually with, with stringing, because uh, a ton of us listening and, and me, mm -hmm. uh, we string our own racket. So like what what's one uh, maybe like mistake or something that you've learned as far as the stringing process that you can bestow upon us as far as the tip? Uh, so, so for natural gut, you have to really be careful not to kink the string or else it, it starts to, uh, it turns white and it doesn't last that long. And, uh, what else? When I, when I weave, I make sure I, I go up and down as I'm pulling the, 
the string. I'm not just like pulling it straight through. I'm like gently bringing the cross strings up and then like pulling it and like, yeah, I'm like massaging the string back and forth. I think pre-stretching is super important when you, when you use gut. Um, let's see what else. And also check that your clamps are okay. I think, uh, I think like sometimes we, we just like think the machine just works if you, and you just show up and it should work. But I also do clean my machine. I clean my clamps every three rackets. So that's probably why they still work. I've had my, my machine since I was like 13. So, so yeah. I've, and ever since then I've been cleaning the clamps every, every three, three or four rackets. Yeah. So making sure they're clean, it, it helps to keep the tension, keeps your, keeps your machine consistent, keeps your rackets consistent. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Uh, thank you for those tips. Um, <laughs> and, uh, curious as far as like you, you mentioned external success versus internal acceptance. And I was wondering if you could kind of distinguish those two and then which one of those is a priority for you and why? Yeah. So external success, I think that's all the things you see on paper. Uh, even maybe your stats, your serving, your serving stats, second serve stats, whatever it's every, it's anything that's like kind of, you, you can, you can see with numbers or something that's tangible. And, and although those, all those things are great, I don't think you can achieve external success without internal acceptance. Um, and the way, the way I see it is when you have internal acceptance, you can allow yourself to to perform at your best or at the or at your best that day and that's when you give yourself the best chance to achieve that external success yeah great great explanation there mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it's it's um i think you I, i've heard you talk about this too but like for me i think about things that i'm grateful for every single mm -hmm. morning part of my routine that's and, uh, yeah yeah and actually do, do you have like a specific morning slash evening routine for yourself Yes. Um, in terms of gratitude, I do have a gratitude journal mm -hmm. uh, in the morning and, and a little entry at night. I think of five things I'm grateful for in the morning. I write those down. I think of five ways today could be great. I write those, I write those down and then I write five affirmations on, on like what I am and what I feel. So I say, I am, you know, relentless. Or I, I am compassionate and I am accepting or I am a great influence on the people around me. So I write five of those down. And then in the evening, I write three amazing things that happened today and uh, three, three ways today could, can get better. And I also go back into the, the section where I wrote down five ways today could be great. And I check off like whatever, whatever did happen. So it's almost like when you when you write down in five ways today can be great. They're almost like sub subconscious goals to go after. And so at the end of the day, I, I look back at those to see how many I I can check off and how many really did happen. So you can remind yourself like all the good that did happen today. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Love it. That's awesome. Uh, I hope that at least some of you listening uh, try that. It's really uh, life changing mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, so we have some other questions here. We have James uh, Classily. That's not a word probably, but he says, Miss Lau, can you talk mm-hmm. about how you get through a match against an annoying opponent <laughs> or are all your opponents as nice as you are um i want him to define annoying i i just don't let it i just don't mind them to be honest i <laughs> I, I, I would i would not say all my opponents are as nice as i am um I've I've had people tell me on changeovers that I got really lucky on the last game or or just um you know murmur to themselves like yeah she's such a push or something I can hear it um but I I think when when I see someone that's maybe a little off putting on the other side I, I either just block it out and if it's somehow just distracting me a little bit I I look at it as um the same way I look at if someone were to cheat me in in a junior tennis match, I just I just think in my head, wow, like this. I think why is this person acting this way? Why is this person cheating me? And it empowers me to think that they're cheating me because they don't think they could beat me fair and square. Hmm. And this person's just trying to be annoying to me because they don't think they could beat me straight up. And that just kind of empowers me to feel that they feel slightly inferior to me. So I, I, and it just makes me bring my game a little bit more and it just makes me go, you know, okay, fine. She doesn't think she could do it um, straight up. So I'm just going to keep bringing my game and, and it just empowers me to stay on task and to stay focused. Wow. I just wrote a note to uh, take a clip from that, uh, you know, response there. I really love that uh, way of (laughs) thinking about it and just kind of flipping it to your advantage as uh, said. So Mm -hmm. that's, uh, Neil, uh, with a question here, what is your best shot slash strength? Would you focus mainly on your strengths now or more on your weaknesses? Very good question. To mm-hmm. balance out your game, as you mentioned that the WTA players have le- less weaknesses. This is funny. I was on court with my coach yesterday, and he was saying that a lot of his students, he'll say that it, he'll say their name and it's their shot. And he says, but I don't have a Danielle shot. And I don't know why Uh, we've been working together longer than all of him and other students, but he doesn't have a Danielle shot. And we came to the conclusion that we've worked on so many shots that there are multiple ones in my game that I just really enjoy hitting. Actually, I, um, my best shot and strength. If you say shot, I'm not really sure. Even right now, um, strength, I would say the mentality. I think that's, I think a lot of people really underestimate like what that does, because if you're, if your mind's not right, your shots won't be there anyways. So I think that's number one. Um, and what I focus mainly on my strengths or on my weaknesses, I, f- I feel that as you get into tournament mode, maybe when you're a week and a half out, you're focusing on your strengths. You're making sure they're in line. And when you have training blocks, probably you go, 
maybe 60%, 60-70% strengths, 30-40% weaknesses. So that's the that's the time when you can start to develop your weaknesses a little bit more, make them smaller weaknesses. Uh, that's that's my take. But I definitely think close to close to tournament time, and when you're getting close to competing, it's important to to make sure that you're locked in on your strengths and and remind yourself you know what makes you great because that's that's how you're going to play the match actually awesome and i'm just reading some nice comments on facebook chris lee says i'm a fan of danielle lau exclamation paul yep this girl is cool i'm glad you agree (laughs) (laughs) very good stuff and um so danielle like obviously it's it's really a tough time right now with Mm -hmm. what's going on and you know, it's hard to generate, uh, you know, revenue, I guess you could say for players. So, uh, what are players doing right now? Are there any that are like doing side hustle stuff and like, what are some ways that players are filling their time and maybe what, what are you doing as well? Yeah, I, I think some players are playing some exhibition matches now. I think we've opened up a few, uh, in Florida, they've opened up a few, uh, facilities for tournaments, especially at Saddlebrook. So I think some players are playing some prize money tournaments uh, in order to to get some money uh i i can imagine maybe people are teaching some lessons i'm not sure because it's it's tough it depends what's available to you too and and for me how how i've been keeping busy is i've been trying to grow my brand i've been doing as many podcasts as i as i can and in order to just you know stay connected with the world and keep my mind going, I've also been hosting a few webinars for for younger kids and their parents. Uh, that that's been really cool and rewarding for me. I've been doing some virtual fitness classes for some of these kids too. Uh, it, it's not the best, but it's it's better than nothing for them. I, I think especially when people are stuck at home, it's it's tough for them and everything becomes monotonous. And it's it's great for them to have you know something to change it up, something to look forward to. And uh, other than that, just been making some goofy videos, trying to keep some people entertained on social media, slowly growing the brand, trying to trying to work on my voice on on the blog through my through my videos as well. So yeah, it's it's been like a, a self growth time. Uh, may, maybe in ways that you cannot see in your bank account, but for sure, I think will help in the future. Yeah, no, that, that's great to hear um, that you're filling yourself, your time up with some great activities and uh, we'll definitely link up to as many as we can. Just curious, you know, uh, I always love to spread what people are doing. Like, are those classes that you're doing something that you're trying to get uh, more people into or is that like kind of for a close knit group? Yeah, it's for now. It's for a close knit group. I, I'd be open to helping others too. It's, um, but I, I guess I'm I'm trying to dust off the cobwebs on my own teaching as well. Uh, I've also taught a couple lessons at you know a few a few houses, uh, depending on availability and such. So that that's been that's been fun for me to you know to visit with kids and just yeah and and, and just try to be a positive influence for them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Ooh, Chris has a good one here. Um, and it's on Facebook. Uh, how mm-hmm. much do you rely on, if at all, on advanced statistics to break down your game or your opponent's games? Uh, never. <laughs> never. I never. Um, I, it's, it's tough. Sometimes I'll, I'll have my coach look at it, but I, I, I prefer to watch. 
Um, I, I don't really look at statistics just because they're different every day. Maybe somebody had an off serving day and I, and um, I, I, I don't like to link my brain to that statistic too much because I can, I can be quite stubborn on the court when I really believe something, especially if you put numbers in front of me, I really believe it. So I just don't want to get too locked in on something like that. I want to trust my eyes. I want to trust my game and my, you know, my, my feel, my intuition on the court. And, and I think that that's another strength of mine in order, you know, I'm just a player that can adjust. And so when I, when I put these barriers on myself with numbers, it's, it's a little, it's a little paralyzing sometimes. So for me, I don't, I do scout video. I do, if, if we are, if I'm able to catch them um, in the match before they play me, I definitely go watch that. Uh, but statistics are are a little much for me sometimes. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And Chris also had another question, <laughs> which is related to: Are you always in in training uh, mode? Like, do you ever play tennis like just purely for fun? That's a that's a good question. So before all of this happened, almost no. Um, well, actually, when I when I practice with my teammates, we're training and we're we're doing these um, we're doing these drills, hitting a bunch of cross courts and enjoying, but enjoying the feeling of doing it. And and for us, it's it's fun. We get a good kick and we get a a huge giggle out of it. Actually, so for us, it's it's fun to do that. Uh, but it, it feels productive at the same time. Um, but in terms of just batting the ball around with with others, not not too much. Um, sometimes I'll hit a little bit with my boyfriend if he wants to hit a little bit, just for fun, for him to get out, get some exercise. I've I've gotten out with a couple of my non-tennis friends too. They're just like, oh, Danielle, come out and hit some with us. And when I have time, I do, but I, I don't do it too often. Gotcha, gotcha. And I would be remiss if I didn't touch upon, um, you know, your decision actually to go pro. I should have probably talked about that earlier, but where. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess I'll let you kind of explain it, but in a sense, you were thinking of going one particular direction and then you just decided that, no, I'm going to go for it. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah. So when I graduated USC, I was lining up a bunch of interviews for asset management companies. I even had a few offers. I, I had offers from um, insurance companies like like Aflac, and uh, it, it's because I did um, I did an internship the the previous summer, so I I had some some job options, but they just didn't really feel right for me. And I, I was also teaching some lessons on side, or more or less, I was a hitting partner for my coach's kids, kind of. And um, I, I would just go go take lessons from my coach still. At the time, he wasn't, I, I didn't pay him anything. I just bought him lunch and I just wanted to hit tennis balls because he was feeding them to me. And um, so a few lunches in a row and like a few months passed by and my coach just asked me, so are you going to play or are we just practicing for fun? <laughs> and, uh, and so it got me thinking, oh, wow, he really thinks I should play. <laughs> and I talked to my college coaches too and they they felt that my love for the game was too strong for me to just to just stop there so I said okay why not sign up for a tournament did pretty well uh in the beginning got a ranking really quickly I've heard some tough stories where people take forever to get their first point and there I did it in in one tournament and um got to around 
top 500 in like three months and thought, well, I can't turn back now. I got to keep going. And then Grand Slams, Grand Slam qualifying became something within reach. And I, I just thought, wow, like I would totally overachieve if I ever made a Grand Slam qualifying. So I really shot for it. Made it to US Open Grand Slam qualifying, qualified for the slam. My goodness, dream come true. My head was about to explode. And um, since then, it's been like, I can't stop. I, I just like, I just want to be here. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that was my story. I'm, I'm glad I... I didn't take up a corporate job and I'm glad an opening in California never happened because I did have a, I did have an offer in Wisconsin and I didn't feel like moving from home. So I, I got lucky. The stars kind of aligned. You passed up all that free cheese. I, don't <laughs> I do like cheese, but not as much as tennis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cheese after tennis. Um, so, uh, and yeah, I, sh I should have asked you, Danielle, about your time constraints, but uh, just let me know whenever you have to. Oh, no, I'm, no, today's the day off, so don't worry. <laughs> oh, oh, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so Arthur has, you know, a fairly simple question, but we'll, we'll definitely mm -hmm. ask it. I mean, do you prefer competing in singles and, and double or doubles? Mm -hmm. I'll ask you also, you know, like how often... Mm -hmm tour do you play doubles yeah so when i first started on tour i played both i played singles and doubles and actually my first slam was a double slam jacqueline keiko and i won the u.s open playoff in new haven and that was our ticket into the u.s open and, and that's actually what got my juices going i was like wow i love being here i love being a player here i need to make this happen for myself but in singles i need to do it for myself so um but now i don't play too much doubles because i've really focused on singles and playing both singles and doubles it makes for really long days and i just want to preserve my body and make sure i just eliminate all all chances of injury that are unnecessary and and i just at this moment i really enjoy being on the court alone <laughs> but definitely doubles was super fun in college it was super fun with with jacqueline making it to a slam i I, I couldn't have imagined like a better story and I couldn't have never imagined that for my doubles game, but it happened and it's, and it's, and it's awesome. So maybe, maybe one day I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool, cool. And, um, so in, in looking forward in, in your career, what aspect or aspects of your game do you think you need to improve upon in order to, uh, mm -hmm. break to the top hundred, top 50 and, and so forth? Mm -hmm. So I am five, three, I'm not very large. Uh, so it's, um, having a devastating first strike is a little bit tricky for me. It's, it's something that definitely needs to be worked on. It's a, it's, it's a skill that may come easier to some bigger girls, but I I've been working on that. And, uh, if you, if you watch the top hundred to top 50, they do have a little heavier first ball serve and return. So if I were to, yeah, put, put a little checklist on, on what to improve, those would be the things. Got it. Got it, Danielle. Mm -hmm. And then uh, do you devote um, like significant amount of time to uh, mental training? And then if so, mm -hmm. like what sorts of things or exercises do you do uh, regarding mental training? Yeah, good, good question. So I, I do believe that you can train the mind all the time. Uh, in terms of formal exercises, I do have a meditation practice every day. 
most of the times in the mornings before I start my day, I feel like when I do do that, my, my days line up a little bit better. I'm a little bit more present with everything. So I, I, I do that. And my gratitude journal, I feel like that's a mental exercise too, to just, it's part of a routine that helps me to get my mind right at the beginning of the day. And uh, I do do a lot of journaling. I talk to, um, yeah, my mental coach, sports psychologist um, that works for the USDA, Dr. Larry Lauer. I talk to him once a week and we talk about certain topics. I, th I think he was on your podcast. He was. Yeah. yeah, he's awesome. So I work with him. Uh, he, and so um, we, yeah, we, we talk once a week about, sometimes we're just, um, uh, I'll just give him some goofy questions and we'll get into the whole like mental philosophy, psychology, like in, in all these you know, different realms. But, um, and sometimes we'll talk about matches and whatnot, what happened here, what happened there. Maybe we'll watch one. So, so for me, those are all, all things I do for, for mental training. And um, on, on top of all that, anytime I am approached with a difficult situation, whether it's physically during fitness or mentally during practice, it, I always tell myself this is a mental exercise. And I think uh, when you can apply that, you are training your mind more often than you think. I really love that. And I definitely agree, <laughs> Danielle. And um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, even very seemingly insignificant choices like, oh, I'm kind of tired, mm -hmm. but you know, I'll take the steps uh, anyway instead yeah. of the elevator. Like just mm -hmm. taking the, the training yourself to take the hard route and, and pushing yourself yeah. to various tasks. So, um, that that is really cool. Uh, <laughs> kind of a side question, I guess, in terms of the tennis. Uh, so I I mentioned very briefly about uh, f photography, and I was wondering, like, what um, what do you do? Like, do you do you just like try to take uh, really interesting photos, and also do you use your phone or like a uh -huh. camera? So I was just curious about that. Yeah. So I I travel with with uh b before i traveled with an enormous nikon i don't even know what model it was it's my dad's and so i i started my my photography hobby maybe two years ago in paris and i was learning about composition you know the two-thirds rule and um paris is so amazing to photograph it there there's just endless things to take pictures of it's such a beautiful city so i i started with that and i i kept up with uh, starting to take pictures with of my teammates. So the next time we were at Rolling Garros, I, I had my teammates come out with me and uh, I, I was taking some pictures of them and and uh, some, some of them and their boyfriends in front of the Eiffel Tower, in front of the Louvre. So we were having like a photo shoot. It was fun for me and it was fun for them because they have real cool, memorable photos to, you know, to keep. And... Um, and right now, because the iPhone 11 Pro is so great, I just have that now. And um, the the videos on that is super awesome. So I don't travel with the the heavy heavy duty camera anymore. It gives me uh, a little bit more space to put an extra pair of shoes or something in my in my suitcase now. So um, so yeah, I mean portrait mode on on my phone is really cool. I haven't been going anywhere really now, so. Uh, my my pictures are just of my dog. <laughs> yeah, and videos of your dog. Like, was it? Yeah. Or was it? Is it a he or she? It's a he, and yeah, he's a Rottweiler. He's a little bit on the smaller end for a Rottweiler, but we we just take goofy pictures of him. Um, and 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 right now, I guess I'm limited to a lot of uh, 
you know, product pictures too. And I, I, I do it to, to help my sponsors out, keep them happy. And uh, yeah, I, lo I love repping their logos and their brands. So it's about trying to stay creative like that since we're not really going anywhere or no one's really going anywhere right now. So you got to find a way to photograph the mundane things and, you know, stay creative like that. For sure. Yeah. And it, it's funny with, with K-Swiss, um, mm -hmm. uh, like in the morning, I actually work out uh, to like these motivational uh, YouTube channels like Mulligan Brothers and uh -huh. like, one out of every third or fourth person on there is Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh -huh. um, yeah, so he's, yeah. he's dropping a lot of knowledge there. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that guy. He's, he's awesome. So mm -hmm. um, very cool. Uh, oh, okay. So we have another question. Um, Bobby, uh, welcome. Uh, as a child, what part of your tennis training do you attribute led most to your current tennis success today? Was it group lessons, private lessons, match play, fitness training, et cetera? Wow. Uh, that's, that's a good question. I would, I would say it's a tie between the match play and the private lessons. I think, um, the private lessons were great for my technique and the match play was, it, I almost treated match play as my rehearsal before the big show. So to see if the technique stayed in place and it was just like a test run before you go, before you go do it for real. So definitely both of those, I don't think, I don't think one or the other is more important. I think you need both. I think if you play too much, too much uh, practice matches, you get a little sloppy. And uh, it's important to have your private lessons in order to tune and refine. For sure, for sure. And I, I forgot to mention too, like when you mentioned your uh, camera and all that, uh -huh. I ordered uh, uh, like a 16 millimeter, like uh, 1.4 aperture, like Sigma wow. lens a few days ago. And then like I got it, I think yesterday, and I was excited because I was like, "Oh yeah, I can use it for the interview." <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, you know, you can't even see team right here, you know, it's yeah. so much bokeh. But anyway, mm -hmm. sorry for that weird brag. But um, as far as uh, oh yeah, so Chris has a question. Uh, so our home tournament for Chris and I is uh, the, the City Open. So do you do you plan at all to come to the City uh -huh. Open like in the future? Yeah, so I I've been to the City Open actually. Mm -hmm. I think that may have been one of my first few WTAs that I've ever been to. It's it's tough for me to get there though because there's normally some challengers on this side of the country mm. and then right right after is the San Jose WTA which is just a drive up north for me and uh and yeah if I if I go over to the city open then I just end up on the east coast for like 3 or 4 weeks. <laughs> Um, you know, leading up to the U.S. Open. And instead of like, you know, flying back and forth, I just, I normally stay on this side of the town if, if there are tournaments here. But if I, if I do end up coming and it's a great opportunity, maybe if I, if I'm, maybe if I don't get into the San Jose tournament, I will let you know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to have you over here. As far as resources, I mean, we talked a little bit about online coaching and all that, but are there any books, uh, sorry, books is sorry. Uh, are there any books that you have read, uh, that have really influenced you or that you can recommend to the audience? I think the inner game is mm -hmm. a great book. Um, my first tennis book I ever read was winning ugly. That's a classic. Yeah. Um, relentless by Tim Grover really had a great effect on me. I love it. Uh, th those are the three that that uh, stick out for me. I am in the middle of seven habits of highly effective people nice. by Stephen Covey. And I, I love it. I think this might be my new favorite actually. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. Very cool to hear. 
So um, I think a lot of guests enjoy this question, but it's kind of thought provoking. Uh, maybe not. We'll see. But uh, if you could uh, place uh, a huge billboard on the most highly highly trafficked um, area of, of California, and you can mm -hmm. write anything on it that you wanted to write, uh, what would you write on it for people to see? Hmm. I wonder. That that's a good question. Hey. The first thing the first thing that pops up in my head is my life philosophy, which is seek lasting improvement. But I think that might might come off too strong for others. Uh, That's good. It might might be some sort of some sort of mindful quote to to be here now, and mm -hmm. uh, might remind people to not be on their phones actually, and and just like drive, be here right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I love both of those. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I feel like it'd be a shame if it was too much for people to hear your first one, because I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they've done like, like statistics on it and all that. And it's very interesting to hear that if you improve yourself by 1% each day for a year, then you become 37 times better. Uh -huh. um, so that's, you know, it's just, I, you know, I believe in this too, as well, just incremental improvements. It's like the story of the, the stone, um, stone cutter or something but like basically you strike the stone like a hundred times and then like you don't see any results but then like on the hundredth mm -hmm. strike then it cracks open then it cracks open yeah exactly yeah. it's not like the the last one that did it it was like all the ones before it so mm -hmm. uh, i always love that story uh as far as like the the current situation again like um what uh, I guess what what do you see happening like in the future? Are, are there any thoughts that you have or any insider you know like talks that that you've heard from people as far as like what what's going to eventually happen for the tour? Yeah, I th we're all kind of in the dark right now. Every every few weeks we get an update from the WTA that or the ITF that they're pushing back the tournaments a little bit further. So as of right now, I, I don't focus on it too much because I, I'll just get antsy and upset about everything being pushed back or like, oh, are they going to keep this date? So I, I've just kind of detached from it a bit and just focus on, yeah, how can I get better today? Maybe I can't play as much tennis right now, but I could definitely focus on my fitness, do all these other things that I enjoy that I can't, I don't have time to do when I'm, when I'm on the road, like, um, you know, doing these podcasts, shooting these videos. So I, I would, I definitely would feel a whole lot of regret if I, if I came out of this in the end and, and not better or like not feeling fulfilled in, in the other things that, that I could have done just because I was so focused on, you know, what, what is going to happen. And so it, it's, it, it's tough also though, to, to train and not have a start not have a true start date. I know they, they've pushed it past July now, but you know, for, for me, I'm still enjoying, enjoying the training. I enjoy exercising. I enjoy sweating. So it's, it's, it's all good fun for me. I just hope that they would be able to to bring the sport back sooner or later. I think doubles may take a while, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but but we'll see. And spectators, goodness, like I, the the fans make make these events amazing. They make their that energy is the reason why. Like I I just I felt like I had to be a part of a Grand Slam after being there for the first time. So it, it it's definitely going to be odd. It's going to be super different, and there's a huge amount of like fear that it will not be the same. But it's but what can we do about it? I could just just hope for the best. Yeah, control what you can't control. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Do do you know of like any pros um, that have just decided to, with especially with the current situation, that they're gonna stop playing, or is it more of like like no one has done that, and then they're kind of hoping for like some financial help in the future type of thing? Uh, I I don't know of anyone really thinking. I it it's definitely crossed a lot of our minds. Like you know, do we retire? Like especially people on the back end of their of their professional career, but no one's really pulled the plug yet. Um, another interesting one is, uh, certain well, for females, they think about like, well, it's time to have a family. Mm. Now it's a perfect time to have a family. Uh, so, so, I mean, those two thoughts are, are probably the most, uh, extreme ones. No, I haven't heard anything nuclear yet about people quitting just because of this. It's just more like an extended off season. I feel like. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Good mm-hmm. to hear. Um, what is one a quote or saying or or something that you've um that that either a coach or fellow player anybody has has told you um perhaps that maybe you haven't mentioned yet that that Mm -hmm. you carry with you uh and often think about Uh, there's actually two uh i i remember my assistant coach telling me uh my junior i don't know uh my the summer after my my sophomore year he told me uh, when when you when you compete your best, you always face the music. Mm. You you don't run, you face the music. When it gets tough, you just face the music, and you got to make that decision every time you're out there. Um, so so that that's one, and and another one is uh, is one by Pete Carroll. It's always compete. So wherever you're going, you're always competing. It doesn't mean that you're competing against the person next to you. It just means you're, you're trying to give your best because that's what competing is about is bringing your best, not really folk. Because when we think about competing, we think about, Oh, so like, do I need to be better than somebody? No, that's not what competing is like in my brain. Competing is, is bringing your best, your best attitude, setting yourself up, you know, to give your best. And and so that, that's another, another quote that I always kind of, yeah, bring along with me. Got it, Danielle. And and when you're faced with situations where uh, you don't feel like making the the right choice, or you're feeling kind of lazy, uh, like what mm-hmm. what's the exact thought process that you go through? Uh, that's that's a good question. So for so for me, I I think about uh, what what am I about, and I, and I always run through my decisions through that philosophy that I said about seek lasting improvement. And a lot of times when you are thinking to do the wrong thing, it's not, or at least for me, it's not lasting improvement. It's just something immediate. Uh, more, more often than not, the, the wrong decision is um, it's made out of fear and, and might be just um, like a shortcut or just I don't know, some, something you're, something you need to have right now and that you can't wait for later, that you don't have the patience to wait for later. So when I run it through my filter of seek lasting improvement, it's, it's make a decision that's going to have a lasting effect of lasting improvement. So uh, when, when I run it through my filter and it lines up with that, or I, I go with a decision that, that lines up with that, or, or I try to try to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, oh, quick praise here. Wendy, Daniel, you're such a thoughtful and inspiring person. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> um, my mom tells me that all the time. <laughs> but she's biased. So uh, anyways, uh, 
Also, as far as your uh, preparation, so when I interviewed uh, James mm-hmm. Blake uh, actually a couple of times, he, he talked about how he actually never felt nervous, which I found fascinating. Huh. And he said that was because he he just prepared so much and he, he visualized like even point by point uh, before matches. So I was wondering uh, what your preparation looks like, if you could maybe give us like a, you know, step-by-step type of deal as far as like what you do to pre- uh, prepare before matches. Yeah, so my, my preparation starts with my eating. I feel like when I when I have a match, I try to eat three, four hours before, and I pretty much eat the same thing. I have eggs and bread, and then maybe an hour or so before my match, I have a peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter jelly sandwich. And it's almost, it's almost like clockwork. As soon as I have that, it's game time for Mm -hmm. me. So I I sit down, I have my, my music on, maybe do a short meditation, nothing too long that makes me too relaxed or too sleepy and, and just work on my self-talk. Just tell myself that, you know, just trust your preparation. Just go out there and, and do your thing. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. And if I, if my coach is there, I give him a little fist bump before I walk into the court and it's, uh, it's a subtle fist bump, but it's like, I feel like we're, we're connected. My, my coach is, um, he's actually deaf. So we do, do a lot of, um, sign language or it, or I, I feel like I could read his mind sometimes. I'm always like really attentive to him or I'm really alert when he's around. So, um, so yeah, when, when we go, when I um, give him a fist bump, I can like feel his energy. It's, it's, it's like, okay, go do it. Go be, and he always tease me, go be Bruce Lee or something like that. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's, it's cool. It's fun, but it's inspiring at the same time. That's really fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. As far as um, I guess, maybe when you transition from uh, perhaps USC coach or another coach mm-hmm. to your coach now, I mean, what adjustments, if any, did you need to make for uh, to work with your coach who, uh, you know, is, is deaf, as you mentioned? Yeah, so uh, I've been working with my coach since I was 15. So there wasn't much of a transition. And during my time at USC, I was also able to go back on the weekends and to see him to stay connected with him. So uh, we've had a we've had a pretty long relationship. Um, But it it is it is definitely different. I my coach now I kind of he's like my sensei. Um, (laughs) So um, working together for a long time, I feel like I know what he wants from me. And when something's when something's off, I can always, uh, you know, ask him to, to help me fix it or help me find a cue to help me fix it without making things too complicated. And um, as far as listening to my college coaches and listening to him, my college coaches were more like life mentors for me. They, they really helped me to compete on the court or how to think on the court. And uh, my, my current coach now is more like the tennis stuff, like the stuff in this, you know, the, the details, the technique, the strategy. Uh, my, my college coaches, they're more like spiritual, um, yeah, mental coaches for me or, yeah, mentors. Very cool. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned meditating. Um, uh, do you use an app or anything or do you just go at it on your own? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I use Headspace. I, I've been mm-hmm. using it for, yeah, a couple of years. I really like the stuff that's on there. Nice, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I, uh, I use Headspace actually for a while, and then I mm-hmm. switched to the Calm app for for whatever reason. But those are two great apps that I highly encourage everybody uh, to check out for sure. Um, also, uh, if you were to not uh, play tennis, I'm very glad, obviously, that that you did. But what what career do you think you ultimately 
uh, would have pursued, or maybe even after tennis, uh, would you pursue? Gosh, this is this is interesting because a lot of people ask me this and say, like, what are you going to do after tennis? And and right now during during COVID, I've I've had time to think about it. Before, I I couldn't really give you an answer because I was just so invested in in, in what I was doing, and and I felt that um, planning planning for whatever happened at whatever's happening after or making a backup plan. It was almost, I almost felt like it was a little lack of belief in my part. Mm-hmm. So um, just believing fully that I can make it to the top hundred was, it was like all, all steam ahead. So I haven't really thought about it until this time, which I've found a little bit more clarity in it. And I, I really would like to uh, share my knowledge and, and, and help mentor younger kids someday, maybe even be a mental coach if I can. Um, I'm not too sure what you would call that, but, uh, I've, I've definitely gotten a feel for, you know, thinking about what I would enjoy after tennis. And, and I also came up, came up with the, with the understanding that this whole, this whole tennis journey, it's gotta be more than just for me. Um, so I, I would like to find a way to share it. Maybe, maybe I will start a podcast. Maybe I'll, I'll keep writing. Maybe I'll write another book. I don't know, but, um, definitely something on along the lines of sharing my experience. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of opportunity for that. And it's easier than ever before, of course, to mm-hmm. build your brand. And I think you you definitely have a great knack, uh, especially for uh, talking and explaining the mental side of things. So that would be great. And you obviously have Thanks. some great resources, you know, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, Dr. Lauer, um, mm-hmm. that could help too. Uh, so somebody asked about uh, whether you had a YouTube channel. So I just want to ask you all in one <laughs> swoop. Uh, you should soon, but if you don't, but do you, where can we like, where can we follow you and, you know, like mm-hmm. join and, and, and check out what you're doing? Yeah. So I don't have a YouTube channel. I have an account, but I do not have any of my, my material on it. <laughs> the best place to find me would be on Instagram at the little giant. And, um, I, I do have my videos there. I think I'm going to start uploading some stuff on Instagram TV too. a few longer videos. We'll see what I can come up with during this time. I'm also on Twitter at the little giant, but, uh, my, I, I would say my more fun stuff is on Instagram and it's just a easier platform to see the visuals. My blog is, um, the little, the And, um, you could, you could see my blogs blogs there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Just scanning to see if there are any other questions here, but, um, mm-hmm. You know, so I ask this question pretty much every episode um, mm-hmm. to kind of maybe summarize a key point for our audience to take action upon. So, um, and you've given us a lot of great tips today, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience of primarily 3.0 to, to 4.5 tennis players to help them uh, move forward with improving their game? Wow. First thing that came to mind is is creating tempo. And I think um, every 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 player, every athlete has this internal tempo and this internal rhythm and timing with their body. So if you can find that repetitive tempo to repeat over and over again, you can find that you can find accuracy and you can find consistency. So for me, that's what stuck out in my head. I'm sure there there are other better tips, but I I think that's that's a pretty good one. And it's and it's something universal to everyone, too. No matter what type of player you are no matter what type of game style if you could find your internal tempo maybe it's with your feet maybe it's with your upper body or everything together if you could find your internal tempo i think that it, it would help a lot 
Wow. So over 140 episodes and I do not remember hearing that. So that's, that's really awesome. Oh, cool. and, yeah. Yeah. Very, very unique. Yeah. And, and um, just want to dig a little bit into that. I'm sure that would take like months of, you know, oh, like, yeah. and, that's you know for another podcast <laughs> sessions. Yeah. But I mean, how does one even begin to try to, to try to find their, their tempo? I mean, you mentioned mm -hmm. a few ways, but like what, any other tips on finding that tempo? Your own tempo? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I try to, um, articulate this with uh with some of the kids i work with and and luckily some of these kids they they play some sort of instrument and i and i tell them there's a sort of rhythm and this like internal tempo you feel when you're playing an instrument um it, it also goes with dancing also but um in, in tennis terms sometimes it's as simple as like right left hit right left hit or if you're bending your knees it's you know down up hit down up hit um it's it's like yeah it's oh it's a continuous tempo that you can repeat and um when you're hitting forehands in a row backhands in a row cross courts you're going right left hit right left hit right left hit right left hit and you're doing it over and over again and it's like it's like a dance move almost and um so if you could feel that time it in your brain maybe it's just a feeling in your body um yeah so that that's kind of something I picked up from my coach and something I use to help time help me get my timing back when when I don't when I'm not feeling it too. Awesome, very cool. And I'm just gonna highlight highlight a couple comments here. Daniel and Mirabon, thank you for this interview. You have it all together. A recipe for big success. Oh, uh, I don't know about Daniel, that. <laughs> uh, Daniel has it more together than me. I'd say. Uh, let's see, uh, David, you have so much love of the game. I hope you are always connected to tennis in whatever capacity you decide. Very Me cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Thank you both. Um, so Danielle, uh, what's next for you? What, what can we expect, uh, you know, moving forward? Well, I, I wish I could tell you the next tournament I'm off to, but, um, I don't even know. I, yeah. I I'm hoping us open is still on the table, but obviously not at the, not at the cost of the safety of everyone. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm still training. I probably hit like twice, three times a week when, when I can, when there's a court available to me. So right now for me, what's next is making, making cool videos, uh, eating healthy at home, thinking about how I'm going to push my body tomorrow on the bike or yeah, something, something creative, just, yeah, just trying to make the most of the moment. But when, Hopefully the tournament schedule gets solidified soon. And um, I think that would give us all a lot more clarity. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, so we're about an hour and a half in. And uh, I want to thank uh, first you, Danielle, for uh, you know opening up and letting us know about your journey. And it's really fascinating to, to talk to you and um, to really learn from you. And uh, clearly a lot, of, a lot of people enjoyed this one. And uh, yeah, just uh, I want to thank everybody as well for tuning in to uh, this very first live uh, you know episode of the podcast. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it being on video and seeing my guests. <laughs> face instead of you know just like the blank screen but uh thank you danielle and i uh, wish you all the best on your continued journey and in uh you know cracking the top 150 and beyond and uh, thanks a lot for joining us on the tennis files podcast yeah th thanks so much for having me this was a lot of fun awesome and thanks everybody we'll see you all right. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Danielle Lau. And Danielle, it was really fun to speak with you and really a pleasure and best wishes to you moving forward with your career. And I hope that obviously that the tours come back when appropriate so that 
things can get back to normal. Uh, and uh, if you enjoyed this podcast interview, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast on Apple Podcasts or uh, your favorite podcast app that you use to listen to the show, and that will help the visibility of the show, uh, get higher up the rankings, and then, of course, that would mean that more people would be able to listen to it and benefit from the great content that uh, comes from our guests and hopefully myself. Uh, if you, you know, hopefully you feel that way, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, uh, also I would like to leave you with a quote as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Willie Nelson and Willie said, once you replace negative thoughts with positive ones, you'll start having positive results. Super true. Uh, that's really the only way to do it. No matter how much, uh, the negative thoughts try to permeate our minds, you really have to really flip the switch as uh, Rick Macy famously says, and just start thinking positively, and then great things will obviously come with uh, with hard work and planning, and create a little bit of creativity as well. So, yeah, I uh, really appreciate you listening. And as I mentioned, check out Danielle's blog at thelittlegiant.net and her social media handles at thelittlegiant. And yeah. Thanks a lot for all your support and uh, kind ratings and reviews. And, uh, you know, just stay safe and be very safe, obviously, if your particular state or region allows tennis out there. And, uh, yeah, that's that's all I can say for now. So uh, looking forward to providing you with some, some more great uh, content moving forward in various uh, platforms, on various platforms. And wishing you all the best. Take care. And this is Mirbon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.